Hello. My name is Russ Ramsey. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown. If uh, you have been other places for the last several weeks, perhaps we haven't met. I just came on staff in July, but I am excited uh, to be here. And uh, we're continuing in a series that we started a long time ago uh, on Colossians. We're really close to the end. We've got two more messages in this book um, before we will have covered the entire thing. And uh, I'm continuing on with a verse that Dave began to unpack last week. And Dave was focusing on prayer and the Apostle Paul asking the believers in Colossae to pray for him and to pray that the Lord would open doors for the gospel to be heard. And he was talking about it, and Dave, Dave reminded us that he's, he's, he's asking for this while he's in prison. And he was pointing out, and I've been thinking about it all week, uh, just this posture of asking the Lord to work even when Paul's personal circumstances were really mixed up. He wasn't asking for freedom. He was just asking that the Lord would work through him wherever he was. And so I've been thinking about that as I've been unpacking the rest of the sentence that Dave started and that we're going to continue to work our way through now. And I want to read uh, the, the, the section of thought before we start to get into it from Colossians 4, uh, verses 3 through 6 is what I'll read. Paul writes this, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, would you take your word this evening and just unfold it for us. Give us eyes and ears and hearts to receive what it is that you're teaching us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Paul refers to the gospel in a curious way in this passage. He calls it the mystery of Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? There's lots of expressions that the Bible uses for the gospel. And here Paul is calling it the mystery of Christ, which ought to cause us to say, what exactly does he mean by mystery? Because there's a lot of ways we could interpret the word mystery, right? One of which is we could interpret it as being something that is unknowable. But we know that that's, it can't be what Paul means. And the reason we know that unknowability can't be what Paul means is because what he's asking is he's asking for the believers in the Colossae to pray that he would proclaim the mystery of Christ in a way that is clear, adding, this is how I'm supposed to speak about the mystery of Christ. And so you can't speak about something with clarity if it's unknowable. So what does he mean by the word mystery? I want to illustrate this for you by showing you something. This bag is, the bag is precious to me. I've had it since high school. Every prayer journal that I've ever kept has at one point or another been lugged around in this little bag here that I have in my hands. But it's what's in this bag that is what I really want to show you today. And what is in this bag, as far as you're concerned right now, is a mystery. 
but I want to tell you about it. When I was a junior in college, no, a senior in college, I spent my fall semester overseas as a student living in Israel, in Jerusalem. I was literally on, I'm just going to hold on to this, wear it like a backpack. I was on Mount Zion, right outside the old city of Jerusalem. It was a five-minute walk to go in through David's gate that's just pockmarked with bullet holes and to buy a falafel. That's how close I was to the old city. I was right there. And I was at this school, and there were a bunch of American students who were there for a semester. And the way that this school worked is it would have classes for four days a week, and then it would have these three-and-a-half-day weekends that were devoted pretty much exclusively to traveling around the country. And we would, a lot of these would be part of, part of our classes. These trips would be planned. They'd be mandatory. And we'd say, okay, this weekend we're going to Galilee, and the next weekend we're going to the Dead Sea, and the weekend after that we're going down toward the Sinai Peninsula. You know, and we'd do these things. But there were a couple that were just ours. There were ours to fill. We could do whatever we wanted with them. And there were six of us uh, who had become friends, four guys, two ladies, and we spent a lot of time together, the six of us. It's a romantic thing to be 21 and living in a foreign country where all the languages of the world are swirling around you and all your time is on your hands. And we decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take this weekend and we're going to pick a place on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, at random. We're just going to pick a place, and we're going to go, and we're going to spend two days there. And so we got the map out. We laid it out on the table, and I had a friend. He was kind of running his finger up and down the coastline, and he closed his eyes, and we said, stop. And where he stopped, that's where we were going. And he lifted his finger, and written there on the map where his finger had been, in old English typeface. You know what old English typeface is? The, like the calligraphy, like the old school looking. Was this city called Dor. D-O-R. We said, that's where we're going. And so we, we raided the kitchen of the school and we got a bunch of food and we got our backpacks. We got sleeping bags and pillows and some things that we wanted, some books to read. And we, we hailed a taxi and we said, we want to go here. Can you take us here? And it kind of looked at us funny. They said, yeah, I can take you there. We're like, what, is it not safe? And he said, no, it's, it's safe. I guess it's safe. It's not unsafe. We're like, well, then can you take us? And he said, sure. And so we hopped in this taxi, and we drove from Jerusalem up, up over to Tel Aviv, and, and then we headed north, and we headed about 45, 50 minutes north of Tel Aviv, and then he stops in the highway, and he hangs a left and starts going down this, what you might describe as a cart path. It's not even really a road anymore. It's just kind of this sandy, sandy thing. And he drives for about two miles, and before us unfolds the Mediterranean Sea. Beautiful, beautiful, deep blue. And we were just so excited. But you know what we didn't see? A city, or a town, or really any sign of human life as the taxi driver explained to us that the reason it was in Old English is because everything on the map that is in Old English is a ruin. It's not a city. And he said, do you really want to stay? And we're like, yeah, we want to stay. This is awesome. This is even better. And so we piled out, not thinking 
that to get back, we'd have to walk two miles from, you know, to the highway in hopes that a taxi that wasn't on duty would drive by in the middle of nowhere and pick us up. Well, we went, we went for it. We found this great place on the beach, and we laid out our sleeping bags, and we found this, like, old... Uh, I guess it would have been like a fisherman's shed that had been kind of blown over and there wasn't much left of it but some planks. We busted those things up and we dug this fire pit and we had this beautiful fire. Six 21-year-olds on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea with a brilliant starry night. Every star just as clear as could be. The moon casting shadows when you walked. We just had the time of our lives. And in the morning, a couple people got up and said, we'll go for a run. Are you with me? Can you see it? I noticed that as we woke up, there were little crabs crawling all over the sleeping bags of my friends. They weren't scared of us at all. This was their beach. We were just visiting. Well, my friends went for a run, and I said, I'm not a runner, but I'm going for it, you know? I'm going to go. And so we're running down the beach. We get maybe a half a mile down, still nothing, no civilization at all. And out of the corner of my eye, in the water, glimmering I see it and I stop and it is what I thought it was and I was so excited what I've just told you is kind of like the understanding that the people of God had of God's plan of salvation before Christ there were specific things God had said but then there was also a lot of room for wondering, yeah, but, but specifically, what is it? What is it? And then one Sunday morning on a tomb outside Jerusalem, the mystery was revealed. And it was a little like this. I'm going to show you what's in the bag. Do you want to see what I have in the bag? All right. It's in my hand right now. I can feel it. Isn't this exciting? Huh? All right. Here it is. It's a message in a bottle. An actual message in a bottle. Washed up on a deserted shore. Not in a place where somebody could have thrown it from the beach I was standing on. But it had washed up. And I found it. And here it was. The revelation of the mystery of what's in the bag. Are you satisfied yet? Hmm? Think about that. I want to say something. The mystery of Christ that Paul refers to is not vague. It's specific. There's detail. There's plot, there's character, all the elements of story. There's climax, there's conflict, there's resolution. There's good guys, there's bad guys, there's heroes, there's people in distress and people who rescue them. It's a very specific story. And Paul is saying, when I proclaim the mystery of Christ, I want to do it in a way that is clear. When I speak... And so he says, walk in wisdom. In verse 5, it's interesting. He's asking them to pray for him. And then he turns the tables and he starts speaking to his readers. And he says, you, 
Walk in wisdom. When you're proclaiming the mystery of Christ and you're wanting to do it in a clear way, be wise. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Consider what the gospel has to do with those who haven't heard it. For those who haven't believed, why do they need to hear it? Our telling of the gospel should be done in a manner that is consistent with the content of the gospel. That it is a terrible story. And that it is a beautiful story. And that it is a story that has been unfolding over centuries and centuries and even back to before there was time. It's that kind of a story. And if we're just mundane and we're just talking about it like we're reading a newspaper article, we're not really being clear about the power of the story of the gospel, are we? I could go on, but you're all mad at me right now. Because you have a question on your minds already. And I have an opportunity to walk before you as a fool. Don't I? What does a fool do? Because the opposite of walking in wisdom is walking as a fool. A fool shows you the message in the bottle and then doesn't tell you what's in it. A fool regards... His walk with the Lord as his own private enterprise. Something that belongs to him. Something that, well, if you don't believe anyway, I don't really want to talk to you about it. A fool is someone who says, I'm going to be consistent in obeying what Christ has called me to because I will feel better about myself. That's why I'll do it. A fool is somebody who thinks that they own their faith as opposed to being owned by it. When I found this bottle, I was a fool. And I'm going to tell you what kind of a fool I was. I didn't open it right away. And here's why. I was on the deserted beach at door and I did not have a bottle opener. And what was I going to do? The way I figured it, I had one option. And that was to take this cork and to shove it inside the bottle in order to get the note out. And what would that have done? It would have ruined my souvenir. Right? And I didn't want to do that. And so I put it in this backpack until I got back to the school. And wouldn't you know it, I had the hardest time finding a bottle opener at that school. And so this sat on my shelf, friends, for three months. And I never opened it. I packed it in my luggage. I took it through customs. It went from Tel Aviv to Amsterdam to Chicago to Tipton, Indiana, before I opened this thing. That's what a fool is with the mystery, revealing the mystery, not even really caring myself what it said. But think about this. Have you ever been in a situation where if you could write a message in a bottle and it could get to someone who could help you, you know what you would write right now? I mean, what kinds of things get written when I started talking about this, when I pulled that out of the bag, I knew we had an unwritten agreement that I would tell you eventually what's written on that piece of paper. I promise I will. 
But you're just going to have to hang with me for a little bit because this is too much fun, right? What could be written? It could be a romantic, a poet, who just kind of is enamored by the idea of the transcendence of human contact and just wants to write a note and cast it into the sea and trust the tides and providence to take it to someone else who knows where just to discover that they've made this connection. It could have been that. Or it could have been lovers. Can you see him? He's got on khakis and a white linen shirt. It's unbuttoned down to here. And they're sitting on a cruise ship. She's in a gown. And they have this bottle of wine and they're polishing it off and they're talking about their love and they're talking about how it's going to last forever and every day is going to be like this one. And he writes a love note in it and he puts the cork in and throws it over the edge and he's got her, you know? Or it could be that those lovers' ship is in bad, bad trouble and it's going down and this is their last ditch hope for rescue and they're please SOS SOS and they're writing it and they're hoping that somebody will find their mystery somebody will read it all those scenarios I described the gospel is all those things and more right it is a profound story of human contact that is that is at the at the discretion and the wisdom of cosmic providence it is the story of deep love. And it is the story of people crying out for help and for rescue coming. I mean, the gospel is all of these things. And Paul says it's a story that you have to tell, and you have to tell it with specificity because it's a particular story. And you have to tell it with graciousness because it's a good story. And you don't want to tell this story in a way that is instantly, immediately alienating the people that you're trying to tell it to. Because it's more than just your story. It's God's story. And it's a good story. Let your speech be gracious, always seasoned with salt. Scripture is redeeming for us salty language. Saying, yeah. Understand that there's grit, that the story, the gospel, the mystery of Christ is not rated G. And if you're going to tell it well, it's going to offend, it's going to make people uncomfortable, it's graphic, it's bloody, and it's glorious. With salt, tell this story. And then he says, do this so that you know how to answer anyone which means that we have to be people who are okay with questions. I know that not too long ago I heard about this this week and it really encouraged me that there was a time when Midtown invited questions, whatever you wanted, and spent time working through some of those questions. That is a good thing. But I want to ask you, is there a question that somebody could ask you that would make you say, I don't even want to be around you anymore. I can't believe that you would go there. That offends me that you would ask this question. Paul is saying, I've got to be gracious with people with questions. A few years back, there was a novelist who wrote about vampires. And she wrote about vampires well. 
which distinguished her from other people who wrote about vampires. And she had a very public conversion experience to Christianity. Do you know what her name is? Anne Rice. That's right. She was very public. I've become a Christian. And she wrote books about her conversion experience, her faith journey. She wrote a book called Christ the Lord. And there were a lot of people, there are a lot of people, Christians who have been fans of her work, who, who just counted this as a very unexpected joy. What a great thing. But then what happened last week on her Facebook page? She blogged these words. And it's just a part of what she wrote. I quit being a Christian. I'm out. In the name of Christ, I refuse to be anti-gay. I refuse to be anti-feminist. I refuse to be anti-artificial birth control. I refuse to be anti-democrat. I refuse to be anti-secular humanism. I refuse to be anti-science. I refuse to be anti life. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity and being a Christian. Amen. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer anyone. How are you doing with what Anne Rice had to say? Where does it take you in your mind and heart. Candidly, I'll tell you where it took me. I'm not really anti those things, except for I don't understand what's wrong with being anti-secular humanism. That's kind of where I went. But Anne Rice on Facebook flustered me. I did not like being lumped in to that big tent of stereotype. And yet I wrestle. Stereotypes exist because there's a lot of truth in them, right? Probably a lot of you are thinking, well, obviously she doesn't really understand biblical Christianity anyway, and we can just dismiss it and move on as whatever. Some of you, though, might feel betrayed, like she's switching teams in the middle of a game. She's letting me down personally. See, the thing is, one, I don't know why Anne Rice wrote that. I don't know what's going on in her life. I don't know what it was that put her over the edge. It seems kind of impulsive, right? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe she went to dinner with somebody who was a lot of these things. She's trying to understand what the church is about. I don't know. It's, it's speculation. The other thing I know is that how many countless people have done this without the benefit of Facebook or Twitter? I mean, come on. If that didn't exist, would we even know the openness of the struggle that she's wrestling with? Here's the thing. Was I ever really in a gracious posture toward Anne Rice if all I ever thought of her profession of faith 
was that it was a thumb in the eye socket of pagan vampire enthusiasts. Yeah. We won. That's not the same thing as loving Anne Rice. And if I don't love her, I'm not going to see the questions in her statement. And you can be sure. There are a lot of questions in that statement. So what do we do? What do we do? She hasn't betrayed me. She's not my enemy. I'm not free to dismiss her from my thoughts and my prayers. Brothers and sisters, this post that she had in her Facebook page was a huge message in a bottle. And guess what? It washed up on the shore of thousands of Christians' lives. What are we going to do? What have we done? Where have our conversations already gone? With Ann Rice or whoever it is. We were thinking, I don't, I don't like what you said. That offends me. I have no graciousness towards you at all. We know nothing about what she's really struggling with. Except for what Facebook tells us. And Lord, let us not use Facebook as authority. Right? Listen. The mystery of Christ is the story of people who are lost and perishing, being rescued and saved. And I need this story as much as Anne Rice needs this story or as much as anyone else needs this story. It's the story of God to the rescue, and it's a particular story. It's the story of how the wages of sin is death and how someone else came and died in my place and gave me his life. It's a story that leans into how we're broken and how we long to be healed and how God has worked in time and space to bring that kind of healing. Our proclamation of the gospel should be an exclamation more than an explanation. It should be flowing from a place deep within us. It's the story of how God responded centuries ago to the pain that you feel right now. It's the story of life. And for those who know this story, though we see through a glass darkly and it be ever so humble, it's still our story to tell. And it's a good story. And it ends well. And Paul is saying, pray that when you tell the story, you would tell it with humility, graciousness, clarity, and spice. And I pray that we would. The paper appears to me to be a ledger from a galley of a ship. It has a listing of, of quantities of wine bottles and uh, vegetable produce. And uh, on it, in blue ballpoint pen, in what appears to be a child's handwriting, are these words. Are you ready? Gilly is the best. And then, underneath it, in what I can only imagine is Gilly's handwriting, is, and so is, and I can't for the life of me make out, you know, who the other person in the equation is, because it appears that Gilly is a lot younger than whoever it was that was writing that. But listen, 
when I see this, I'm reminded of something. And I want to remind you of this as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. When I see Gilly as the best, I am taken back in my mind to when my friend Jamie Hines and I were nine, ten years old, parked our bikes on the gravel road outside my house, and cut our hands and became blood brothers. I'm reminded of the little clubs that kids form as a way of simply saying to one another, you're my friend. And I imagine the scene playing out. I'm just imagining the scene. But imagine it with me. I imagine that Gilly and his older brother or friend or whoever it was, that they stole the bottle away from their parents' dinner table on a cruise. And I wonder, was it empty? And I wonder, did they have the forethought to take the cork when they took the bottle, or did they have to go back for the cork to get the bottle? I see them finding a place that looks like it's a good enough place to write down weighty words. Have you ever looked for the right place to write down weighty words? Just the right place. I see them looking over their shoulder to make sure that the coast is clear. And I see them struggling to come up with something that would appropriately capture the significance and the solemnity of what it is that they're wanting to do. And I see the older one taking the pen and writing, Gilly is the best, and explaining to Gilly what he's just done. You see what I just did there? You see how I did that? And then Gilly, weighing it in his mind, trying to get his mind around it and trying to return the praise, doing his level best. And I see them with nervous excitement picking up the bottle and shoving in the cork and making sure the coast is clear and heaving it into the ocean. Written with these words that might as well have been written in blood. And I am reminded... When I see this, though I'm just imagining more of the mystery, I'm reminded that the world that we live in is not nearly as broken as it could be. And that's a grace from the Lord. That there is joy. That there is friendship. That there is wonder. That somehow I find captured in this bottle. We all understand. We understood it the minute I held this up. That this was more than just glass and paper. And more than cork and string. We knew that this was a story. We knew that this was a message. And we wanted to know what the message was. And I pray that our testimony, the way that we live, the way that we engage people, would be in such a way to where they would not let us out of the room until we told them the story that Paul calls the mystery of Christ. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for Gilly. I thank you, Father, for the way that you 
have replicated stories of healing and redemption so many times that when we are at our end and we are low and we are broken and we are hopeless and we are scared, we don't have to look far to find stories of hope and things turning out okay. Redemption being something that is real. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that our faith is not a generic, nebulous concept of simply a loving God, but it is a particular story of how you loved us and why we needed you to love us in the way that you did and what you gave to draw us to yourself that we might know you and be restored to you. Thank you, Lord, for this time together this evening. Bless us as we come to this table now. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.